Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Today, again, it's a joy to have with us. Michael Zeldin, a former prosecutor, did time in the federal government, CNN uh, uh, analyst, and all-around rock and roll guy. So (laughs) we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, When we come back, we'll have Michael Zeldin. And we're back. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me now is Michael Zeldin. And Michael, I guess I'll just, uh, thanks for doing this again. I appreciate it. It's always a joy to have you. It's my pleasure. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, your background gives you a great uh, opportunity to have an insight into a lot and what's happened recently in the federal government. I, I'd like to start with uh, the first issue I wanted to talk about was um, in Portland, Oregon, where the uh, acting Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, has said he's going to, uh, mayors asked his uh, troops to leave. And Chad, uh, Chad says, uh-uh, we're going to clean this city out. Does that present a problem as far as rule of law? Well, so let's back up and go forward. <clears throat> Protests have been taking place in Portland for about 49 days now in the aftermath of the uh, murder of George Floyd and the um, Black Lives Matter um, related protests. And the, the protests seem, you know, reasonably speaking, um, peaceful. Um, there's graffiti and other things that's normally associated with political protests, but n- no one is being killed and no property is being blown up, like in the anti-war days right. uh, in the 60s where buildings were being bombed. There's nothing like that going on here. A lot of anti-Trump graffiti and and other you know sort of anti-government generally um, uh, graffiti, but but pretty much peaceful um, protests. Well, that that is not acceptable to President Trump and his acting head of um, Department of Homeland Security, um, Chad Wolf. And so what they have done is they have deployed federal officers who are driving around Portland in unmarked cars wearing undisclosed um, identification. You know, normally police, you know if it's a police officer because it is police, but these guys are, are, are going around not as clearly identifiable as, you know, law enforcement, uh, duly constituted law enforcement officers. And what they're doing is essentially snatching people off the off the streets and um, in, in interrogating them, and then presumably um, releasing, releasing them 
without you know, charges being without charges being filed. It's, it strikes me as um, grossly unconstitutional. Normally, in order to detain somebody, you need um, a reasonable suspicion to stop and frisk, or you need probable cause to arrest. And and there's no indication that these people have engaged in any conduct that amounts to a probable cause basis for arrest. And in fact, they are being read their Miranda rights, implying that they are being uh, detained and um, uh, on the basis of probable cause. But when there is nothing to be found in their brief interrogations, they seem to be let go. These people are going to sue for unlawful detention. Um, I think they're going to win. Yeah. Okay. But that aside, this is the United States of America. The year is 2020. You're walking the streets. You've got absolutely, you've, there's no probable cause. There's no reason. And people are snatching you off the streets. I, I, I know we've stretched this metaphor to death, but it still smacks of, of something that you would run across in a totalitarian government, either in Russia or, or Germany or fascist Italy or some other place, not the United States of America. Yeah, in fact, the the, the uh, interim executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union (ACLU) in Oregon said, uh, "It's a great quote." He says, "Usually, quote, usually when we see people in unmarked cars forcibly grab somebody off the street, we call it a kidnapping." <laughs> yeah, now, that is what is happening in Portland. And everyone in the U.S. should be concerned. These actions are flat out unconstitutional and will not go unanswered. And um, that is what is um, happening in, in Portland. And the local officials, the governor and the, the mayor, say, we don't want you here. We don't need you here. Everything is more or less under control. What is happening in Portland is that people are exercising their First Amendment right to um, express their opinions, their, 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 their right to peacefully assemble and to protest, and that your, you know, sort of to use the, a bad term, but your Gestapo-like um, behavior is, is un-American and, and, and unwanted. Man, I think there's a distinction, is they're not also in... It's one thing for a city, you know, the government, the federal government, I know what people in the Trump administration are saying. We have the authority. We're the federal government. We can do this if we so want. And it's not unheard of for, you know, National Guard or our national troops to come in uh, to cities. But it's not to protect, to protect life and perhaps federal property interests. Yeah. And the Neither of those. Hey, help us out. Send in the National Guard. Right. Neither of those things, neither life nor federal property um, interests, appear to be implicated in what is going on in Portland. There was a there was a fellow who was uh, reported in the newspaper, Mark Pettibone, the 29 year old uh, kid from Portland, and he was asked on Oregon Public Broadcasting what happened, and he said, "I'm sort of basically walking down the street." Uh, the van stops. I'm tossed into the van. I have my beanie pulled over my face so I couldn't see. They held my hands over the head. 
Um, they took me into a building. They went through my belongings. They read me my Miranda rights, didn't say what I was being arrested for. And after refusing to speak to the agents without a lawyer, um, 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 let go. Um, he said, all, I hap all that happened to me is I happened to be wearing black on a sidewalk in downtown Portland. And apparently that was enough for these agents to come and snatch <clears throat> off the street. So, you know, that is terrifying from a constitutional rule of law uh, standard. Is there a government, is there a what, all right, so they can sue. Is there a government remedy to this systemic abuse of constitutional rights? Well, I mean, the, the governor and the, and the mayor have both said, go home, we don't want you, but they don't control federal, uh, you know, sort of law enforcement, the DHS um, personnel. Those are the same personnel I think we saw um, dropping, you know, sort of cluster bombs, tear gas sort of stuff in the Lafayette Park protests yeah, in front of was, I think they are the same group. This, they, they, they're essentially unmarked police officers uh, driving around in unmarked um, cars, uh, snatching people or engaging in law enforcement activity. It should be chilling um, to everybody. But to answer your question, does the state have the authority to keep them out? I don't think so. I mean, I think that they can go there. They just go there in an unwanted way in, and in a way that I think will backfire in respect of the protesters. They're going to find new reason to continue to protest with good, uh, additional good reason. Their initial good reason, their initial reason is good. And this makes it, this makes it doubly good. And then you got all this, you know, sort of hopeful outrage at the, at the, what I call Gestapo tactics of the DHS of arresting people without probable cause, uh, uh, detaining them, questioning them, and then sort of tossing them out of the, of the van. I mean, you see this in movies all the time where all of a sudden a van is driving slowly, someone gets snatched, and then sometime yeah. later in the movie, the same van is driving slowly and someone gets pushed out and they get rolled out onto the sidewalk. And sometimes they're alive and sometimes they're not here. Thankfully, they're alive, but... but was the government doing it. <laughs> they're allowed to walk out of the court, uh, the court building instead of um, rolled out of the moving vehicle, but it's just not acceptable, Brian. In, in your, in your uh, time working for the government, did you all ever engage in that type of behavior? Well, you know, occasionally the federal government <clears throat> would do what they call these um, uh, renditions, where they had a person who was under um, a warrant for arrest, often in a foreign country, um, and they'd go sort of snatch them and bring them back uh, to the U.S. to, to, to face the, tr the criminal charges that had been lodged against them. Normally, he was like notorious drug traffickers and other criminals of that ilk. But in the United States against U.S. citizens that aren't under uh, indictment uh, or facing an, uh, um, some sort of a subpoena or arrest warrant or something, absolutely not, because it's not lawful. It's, yeah, not constitutional. Well, it's nice to know at some point in time I, we, we followed the Constitution. It'd be nice to get back to that. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what elections are for. <laughs> coming up November 3rd to a theater near you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, Stone 
commutation. Uh, uh, Friday night, eight o'clock at night, uh, our beloved president decided to commute the sentence of Roger Stone. Uh, there are some people who don't understand what a commutation is, and it's not the same as, as a pardon. First of all, let's start there. What did he do by commuting the sentence? He's still a felon. Mueller already wrote an op-ed about that. But um, I, I mean, he remains a felon, but what does a commutation do for Roger Stone? It means he doesn't have to go to jail. Bingo. <laughs> it's a get out of jail free card. The difference between a commuting of the sentence and a pardoning of the person is that the commuting of the sentence is just the changing of the terms of the sentence. We see this in the movies all the time where the governor at the last minute commutes the sentence of a person who's uh, scheduled to die in the electric chair and they turn it into life in prison. That, you know, is the classic movie um, commutation. That, in that case, it's a state commutation, the governor commuting the sentence. Here, the president, as to federal charges, commuted Roger Stone's sentence so he doesn't have to go to jail. We saw that done by George W. Bush in the case of Scooter Libby. He was his sentence was just for the hell of it, Scooter. Hi, Scooter. <laughs> yeah. And so essentially, it's it, it, normally, I mean, the thing that's unusual about this case, when you talk about who is Roger Stone and why did he get commuted, um, but normally you, sentences are commuted after um, they petition the Justice Department. It goes through the pardon attorney office. A recommendation is made. Typically, the person is already serving their sentence right. and they're saying that my sentence is uh, unusually harsh. And could you, in your discretion as um, chief executive, reduce the amount of time? And we saw that with an African-American woman who was in jail for a long time. President uh, Trump commuted her, her sentence um, from some drastically long sentence to to her, her release. So it can be done um, for good purpose, um, but it's not a pardon. A pardon Well, is, let, me, let me interrupt you and ask a question about the commutation. Um, I understand that the rules concerning commutation say, and you had spoken a little bit about this, that the Office of the Pardon Attorney and the U.S. Attorney General submit a recommendation as to the appropriateness. And usually, like you said, they're already in, in jail. The, the, or in prison. If the president takes it upon himself to do this, does the pardon attorney and the U.S. Attorney General still have to give such recommendation, or is that he just, hey, I'm commuting the sentence to hell with it? The latter. He, he, if he wants to, he can simply bypass the Justice Department. Remember, just, Justice Department works for him. Right. He doesn't have to wait for their recommendation. He can commute any one sentence. He did that. He did that with um, Sheriff um, Apayo, remember? Right. Uh, he, that guy got pardoned, I believe, and um, they bypassed the, 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 the DOJ. So um, the president normally gets these recommendations as a full process to make sure that these things are applied fairly. Um, across the, the board of people who are um, seeking pardons and commutations, but 
the president is not bound to, um, to, to rely on DOJ or even to accept their recommendations. If he does rely on them and right. DOJ says, we recommend um, pardon, he can say, no, thank you, or vice versa. If they recommend that the pardon not be granted, he can say, too bad, and, and pardon him. He's got absolute authority to do it. And we know what a pardon is. It's just, hey, pardon, <laughs> you're out. That's, that's also get out of jail. They drop all the charges, right? In essence. Yeah, and the thing that's important is that when you're pardoned, you then are restored your right to vote immediately because you've been released of your criminal sort of um, a scarlet letter. Uh, but if you're commuted, you don't go to jail or you get out of jail, but you're still a felon. And um, if you live in Florida, you still don't get to vote. <laughs> and so the, the question then is why commute his sentence rather than pardon him? What advantage is it for Trump? Because he's not going to do anything that didn't, you know, didn't give him some sort of advantage. Why choose commutation over a pardon? I think for politics. I think that the um, blowback against the commutation was pretty uh, significant. You saw Democrats roundly um, criticize it and it stirred Robert Mueller um, out of his hibernation to write an op-ed um, justifying the prosecution of, of Stone. But it also prompted um, people such as um, the senator from Utah to Repu the Republican senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, to write in on a Twitter feed that this is unabashed corruption of the of the worst type because the allegation is is that stone was prosecuted for lying uh the judge said at the time of his sentencing you are being sentenced for lying uh to congress and not for covering up of the president because he trump said i'm just being persecuted for covering up for the president but the truth of the matter is that many believe that stone is in fact covering up uh, for the president and that his refusal to testify truthfully is uh, what uh, led him to get commuted. That is part of the continuing cover-up. And uh, well, so then obviously the reason why you commute the sentence is to keep his mouth shut and at the same time trying to play a political game. Uh, you don't take it too far by pardoning him. You're uh, acknowledging that he's a criminal. Exactly. And, and, but, um, but still kissing his butt so he doesn't talk to you. You're well, that, to both, best of both worlds. Yeah, so you 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 minimize the amount of political uh, blowback. You um, continue to appease Stone, assuming Stone has something to say. I'm not really clear that he has anything to say. And, um, and you I reserve anything you reserve. anybody says who has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on their back. But that's a <laughs> I know that's a different issue. But right. It's hard to believe anything that Stone says, but I got to tell you, it's hard to believe anything that anybody says in this administration about anything. I think they're lying every time they open their mouth. But remember, the thing that's um, worth noting, Brian, is that as in the case of, of Scooter Libby, Scooter Libby was commuted um, by George W. 
Bush. Remember, Scooter Libby was the White House, the worked on the vice president's um, uh, staff, and he was uh, he he lied about uh, whether he exposed Valerie Plame, who was a CIA undercover CIA agent, and he was prosecuted and and convicted, and and W commuted his sentence, and then last year Trump pardoned him. So you can be commuted and then later pardoned. And so if Flynn were to um, be commuted now, it still allows for the president uh, post November 3rd, win or lose, uh, to, to pardon him. Yeah, so if Trump loses, one of his last moves could be to just pardon the guy. Him, Manafort, Flynn, you name it. Well, let me, before we go to break, let me, let me uh, ask you one last question in regards to commutation and pardons. The, there is a rumor, I've heard more than one person, and, and not just press speculation, but actually people in the government who have said that they have a fear that if Trump loses in November, that he will pardon, like you said, Manafort Flynn, everybody that he wants to, and then a day before resign and allow Pence to be a president for the day and have Pence pardon him. Is that in fact plausible, possible, viable? You, you've said before uh, that with President Trump, anything is possible. Whether it's normative, whether it's normal is a whole different, <laughs> But remember, um, but can he do it? Some of the things that Trump does, other presidents presidents have done too. Clinton um, pardoned the notorious uh, Mark Rich um, on the last day of his presidency against the objections of the DOJ, if I recall correctly. George um, W. George H. W. Bush pardoned. Um, Casper Weinberger and a few others involved in the Iran-Contra uh, style uh, trial, to be trial, um, after he lost the election. So in December, I think it was December 24th, as um, the special prosecutor was about to begin his case of uh, against Casper Weinberger for multiple crimes, H.W. Um, Bush pardoned him and, and his co-defendants. And that essentially killed the Iran-Contra investigation because none of them ever told us what was happening. And George W. Bush theoretically could have been implicated in wrongdoing by Weinberger at that trial. So, I mean, stuff like this goes on. Um, Trump's not the first person um, to do it. He's just the person who does it um, most frequently. Um, but you see him actually quitting and having and then having Pence pardon him? I, I suppose Gerald Ford pardoned Richard. Um, Richard Nixon. And so if Trump were to resign and Pence was to become president, the first act that President Pence could do would be to pardon ex-president Trump. You know, some people, some constitutional lawyers, um, I don't know if, I don't think it's a majority opinion, but some constitutional lawyers say, 
there's nothing in the Constitution that overtly prevents the president from pardoning himself. So, you know. Now that would be of even greater interest. I could, if that happened, I would think there would be a hue and cry across the land. But I don't know, like you said, if there's anything to do about it. To end, you know. But the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that in this um, science fiction um, novel of the president resigning and, and Prince coming in and then pardoning him, he can only pardon him for federal crimes. So um, when we come back after the break and we talk about the Supreme Court decisions in the Manhattan District Attorney. Right where I was <laughs> We could um, that, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the pardon, this, you know, the theoretical pardon of Pence by Pence of Trump would not cover state charges, only federal charges. With that, we'll get a break and we'll be right back. And we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me is Michael Zeldin. As usual, man, fascinating conversation. I, I love to get your take on this stuff. And we were talking about um, <laughs> could Pence, <laughs> when we win the break, could Pence <clears throat> pardon Donald Trump if Donald Trump quit for a day and let Pence on his last day uh, pardon him, or would Trump pardon himself? And as you pointed out, that was about federal crimes, but he also faces state crimes, potentially. And the Supreme Court recently has made a few decisions about subpoenas that have both, it seems to hinder his, uh, his defense and help it. Can we go over some of that? Sure. There were three different um, subpoenas that were issued, two by the United States House of Representatives and one by um, New York State um, um, District Attorney um, Cyrus Vance. Vance, in the New York State prosecution, is seeking documents from third parties that relate to Trump's payments for Stormy Daniels and other um, sort of related activity. Trump took the position in, in the court that he was immune from those um, subpoenas, that he had absolute immunity from those uh, subpoenas, and that he therefore did not have to um, reply uh, to them. The Supreme Court rejected that absolute immunity standard that the president was, was um, uh, proposing, and um, said that no, he's in fact um, subject to um, subpoena uh, his, for his records, just as anybody else is. And they also rejected the government's proposal that if they reject absolute immunity, that when they review the subpoena, they review it on some heightened need standard, that the normal standard for review of a subpoena be uh, discarded in favor of a heightened need standard. So the court rejected that as well. So the court rejected the absolute immunity. You can't do this to me while I'm president. And if you can, you can only do that on a heightened need standard. The court said, no, 
the normal processes um, will, will apply and we're going to send this back to the you got to be got to be accountable in other words you have to be accountable you know the, the hackneyed expression of no man is above the law um, is you know trumpeted here as well and the um, upshot of it is is that the case is sent back to the district court where the the trump lawyers have now the right to challenge the subpoena as ordinary people would meaning if you were subpoenaed brian and you went to court you would have the right to defend against complying with the subpoena by saying the subpoena is overbroad or the subpoena is a fishing expedition unrelated to criminal conduct it's a you know political vendetta against you for your behavior at the white house blah 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 they have way but let me this brings up something that always kind of gets to me isn't it simply that donald all right the 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 i mean it's a nice precedent to establish that the president is not above the law that's great he's but the president was assuming he was probably knew that he would get a ruling against him, but doesn't care because it dragged this thing out. So now you're back to square one where you should have been in the first place in, in requesting, you know, that the subpoena be quashed because of the reasons that you state. And he's not going to, he's not going to meet those standards either. Isn't this just, this, this just looks like if you're on the outside, you're not a lawyer. It's great that the Supreme Court gave that decision that and definitively said no one is above the law and maybe in the future we'll thank Donald Trump for making that, spelling that, what everyone thought was obvious, spelling it out. But isn't this just an attempt to keep the ball moving and keep obfuscating until he's out of office? He doesn't want to face this charge. He don't want to face anything. Well, it's complicated, as, as they say. So... The position that Trump took with respect to absolute immunity, many presidents have suggested that they agree with this absolute immunity. And the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department has opined that um, presidents may be absolutely immune in, in certain contexts. So he's not sort of out in left field in asserting uh, asserting this argument or this heightened need standard. Um, but the Supreme Court addressing it for the first time resoundingly rejected it. The consequence um, of the president taking this position is, as you suggest, that when this goes back to the district court, it's going to be litigated. The president is going to say, the, the, the subpoena is overbroad. The subpoena is, you know, a fishing expedition. The subpoena is infirm for this reason and that. And the district court is going to hold a hearing and it's going to make its rulings. And then the court of appeals will be petitioned if Trump loses to uh, review this. And so absolutely right that the practical consequence of this being returned to the district court, even though Trump lost his you know, principal argument in the Supreme Court is that it will be delayed and most likely delayed until after the November election. Right, where it will be, well, that will be interesting because if he's out of office, then, then 
that's well, like I said, it's just going to be interesting one way or another. But remember this. What I don't want to get away from the thing I think, you know, they'll, maybe they'll thank him for years later is this does spell out for the first time. And while other presidents have made similar claims as, as Trump, no one has taken it to his length. But they are establishing now that for all time, I suppose, that the president of the United States is not above the law. That's right. And the, the standards of accountability may be a little bit different for the, for the president. That is, they have to take account of you know, certain unique aspects of, the, of, of being president versus being me or you. Um, but that, like in the case of Richard Nixon, where Nixon was forced to turn over the tapes when he claimed right. he privilege to protect him from having to turn them over, and the court said no. Uh, this case sort of follows along that um, legal analysis, which is to say that the courts have determined that in the context of a subpoena by a law enforcement authority, in this case the state, in the case of Nixon, the federal authorities, that the president of the United States has to answer to the duly constituted um, subpoena I issued to him. So do you think the Supreme Court ruling, if we look at it, it the Supreme Court ruling going forward is, is a good thing for the U.S.? I mean, it, our future will, in the future, will we be able to hold people accountable better than we have in the past? Yeah, I think that it elaborates and expands and make clear that which the, the Nixon uh, tapes case made, which is that the president of the United States is not absolutely immune and that when a grand jury, in this case, a state grand jury, seeks presidential information, the president um, has to comply subject to the normal types of state law protections that ordinary um, human beings have. So he's not made worse. He's not below the law. He has the same right to contest a subpoena that you and I have. He just doesn't have an enhanced, an enhanced right, exactly. And that, I think, is, is, um, is good. And, and the decision um, in, in, in this respect, it was unanimous. That is, the, the Supreme Court, um, by a, a nine to nothing vote, said that the president is not absolutely immune from the issuance of um, the, the subpoena. The dissent uh, picks, nitpicks and says, in some sense, that uh, the, he may be entitled to enforcement of the subpoena um, release. But, but seven judges, including Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, uh, said that the um, president's obligation to respond to a subpoena is equal to yours and mine, more or less. More, more, more or less. And well, he's, he's, I mean, he is the president, so he does get, he does get certain benefits under article, article. I mean, he, you want the president, you want the president, whether you like this president or don't like this president. Um, well, national security needs, I understand, and, and all of those consequences and the special uh, condition of his office, but the arbitrary use of power is what I and most people are concerned about. And I and I would I I you know 
I ask this of you. You you spent time. You did time in the federal government. Doesn't it bother you that there are those that in the government? I mean, I, I th it, se it seems like such an obvious question. Aren't aren't we all concerned that our president is treated not above the law, but as every one of us are treated? Yeah, and 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 I think this this um, this case says that it says that the president is unique. He has. Um, special um, privileges. After all, he is the president and you wouldn't want a hostile Congress interfering with his ability to be, um, to, right. be to be president. And you can, you know, to use the Alan Dershowitz shoe on the other foot test, you wouldn't want a, a Democratic president being um, right. besieged by subpoenas that are, um, you know, purely politically motivated in an effort simply to cripple uh, the president and the and the like Supreme, Court. Past. <laughs> the Supreme Court says you know it's in, it's in, in analyzing the um, request for information you got to take account of the fact that this guy is the president of the United States and we want him to be able to do his job un unencumbered um, by you know sort of harass you know harassment. And uh, well, that so I mean, you have to want to make sure that the rules that are applied are are the same rules that you would want applied um, to your guy or gal, um, and not relish the fact that they're being applied to a person who you disagree with. Because the reality, of course, is is that these things, you know, what goes around comes around that which you know is is used now against your enemy will be used against you so you really don't want to relish in bad law uh, because that bad law will be applied against you so here I think the court did a good job in in, in making sure that it's clear that the president is not absolutely as absolutely immune that he doesn't have any um, privileges in, in respect of that, but he doesn't lose his right to contest as any ordinary citizen would be um, the, the contours of, of a subpoena against him, taking in a, with the district court, taking into account the fact that he's, he's president and that you have to uh, be mindful of that fact. He's got a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, he's got a lot of stuff to do. He does have a lot of stuff to do. Listen, speaking of a lot of stuff to do, um, He's been tweeting recently about General Flynn. Wait, can uh, I just say one other thing? We just talked about the um, we just talked about the New York State case. The the other cases in the Supreme Court were the House of uh, Representatives also seeking uh, to subpoena from Deutsche Bank and Capital One and Mazers financial institutions additional information on um, Trump. And again, again, the court rejected the notion that the that the president was immune from those sort of subpoenas, and they sent the case back to the lower court, saying that the court had to apply a, a, a multi-part test to determine that Congress really had a need for the information, that the information was related to a valid legislative under, undertaking, that the uh, subpoena was narrowly tailored to the exact purpose um, that it was intended and not a fishing expedition and there were no alternative 
sources for the information available. So again, it's a win for the rule of law. It's a win for the, the prerogatives of Congress to exercise its authority as a co-equal branch under the, under the Constitution. But it makes sure that when the matter goes back to the district court for evaluation, it takes account of the fact that you are seeking information, you know, from from the president of the United States, and that for you, know, and you have to have, have a legitimate basis for doing that. And and if the uh, if the House committees that issued these subpoenas have a legitimate legislative purpose for doing so, and I think they do in reading their their subpoenas. Then they'll then they'll win eventually, um, you know they'll 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 yeah. win. Again, he may well be out of office. Um, but you know the Brian the, the the concluding thing about this before we we switch subjects to, to yeah. Michael, Michael Flynn and rock and roll, the the reality of this is that all all of this stuff indicates well why the House chose to proceed with its impeachment proceeding in the manner that they did and not wait for the courts. Because remember, there was a lot of criticism that the House acted too quickly, that they should have litigated these subpoenas in the, in the courts. And once they got a court ruling, then they should proceed with impeachment. That was the refrain that we heard from the Republican side of the aisle throughout the impeachment um, proceedings. Well, here you see, you know, sort of as exhibit A, why the House managers said, we really can't wait for, for the courts because the courts will take so long as to deny us the opportunity to impeach on what is, uh, you know, an impeachable obstruction of justice um, uh, basis here. And, and, and so these cases, the fact that Supreme Court ruled pretty much unanimously against the Trump um, position, but sent it back to the lower courts means that there could be years of additional litigation. And if the House managers waited for this litigation to commence, uh, there would not have been a possibility of an impeachment. So and the Republicans knew that. That's why they did it. Yeah, well, but but I mean, I think I think for the critics of the House who said, you know, you acted too soon, I think this is, you know, uh, ex exhibit A in, in response to why they felt they needed to act now rather than wait. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. But I, I go a step further and say that it was a disingenuous and specious uh, defense or, or accusation against the House managers. And Republicans knew what would happen, that it would take too long, and that the Democrats were right in doing so. And now, like you said, this is evidence of it. But but the Republicans knew that most of them were lawyers. It's not like, not like they didn't know. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm surprised. They knew it was a specious argument when they made it. But that, right, I do want to go on to Flynn. So <laughs> he tweeted out a lot of stuff about Flynn. One of them was uh, on the 11th. New documents just released reveal General Flynn was telling the truth and the FBI knew it. <laughs> he tweeted before that he had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president and the FBI, and he's pled guilty to those lies. So here we are, why are we even, what, what, why are we talking about Flynn and what's the importance of him now? Right, so Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn pleaded guilty to, to lying um, to the FBI and um, was um, about to be sentenced 
for, for those lies. And he got a new lawyer who said, you know, you are, you are a victim of, of police um, over um, acting against you for political purposes. And we should try to get this uh, plea withdrawn. And um, so they filed a motion to withdraw his, his guilty plea. And the Justice Department eventually agreed that there was misconduct by the prosecutors and the FBI, and that Flynn um, should have his, um, his case dismissed. They filed a motion to dismiss uh, it with, with, the, with the trial judge. The trial judge said, not so fast, under the rules of criminal procedure, the um, prosecutor has the right to ask for a dismissal. And in, in the ordinary course, those dismissals are granted, but that that request has to be with the approval of the court. And as I said, the court almost always approves dismissal of a case. Right. Uh, except, if, except if they're doing it for bad purpose. And um, the district court judge said, you know, wait a second, I, I don't buy that uh, Flynn was railroaded or improperly prosecuted. And I'm not so sure that I'm prepared to dismiss as you request. I want to hold a hearing to determine what is really going on here. Well, um, the case was appealed. That, that decision to hold a hearing to find out what was really going on behind this motion to dismiss uh, and the appellate court agreed um, that the judge should have to dismiss the case and so essentially mandated that he do so, um, which would be a, a, a you know, complete victory for Flynn. The judge didn't take no for an answer. He didn't accept that he must do what the, the, the three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals ordered him to do. He appealed that decision to what they call the full, the, they call it Enbank, E-N-B-A-C-K, which means the, the total court. So there are 11 judges on the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia. Um, and he said to the 11 judges, you guys should review the decision of the three-judge panel, um, because I think they were wrong. And I think I should have the right to hold this hearing and find out what um, was happening here behind the scenes. What's the backstory of the, in, the, in, the, in the Flynn case? Who were the three who made the decision? Two Republicans and, a, and uh, two Republican appointed judges and one uh, Democrat appointed judges. And that's, and that's how the split went. I think, that, I think the judges were, I, I don't remember, Brian, I think one was a Trump appointee, one was a H.W. Bush appointee, and one may have been a Clinton appointee. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but that's, it was a two to one split. It was not a, it was not a unanimous decision. And having my own experience with that court <laughs> and getting my press pass back and suing the president, I can tell you it's a very interesting court of appeals. Uh, and it would, so it, if it goes before the whole, all 11 judges. Then if they accept the case, they don't have to accept it. Right. It's discretion, it's in their discretion. If they accept it, then that 11 member body will determine whether or not the judge 
has the right to hold this evidentiary hearing to see what really was going on in the Flynn case, um, whether or not there was prosecutorial misconduct and the FBI misconduct, or whether or not there was something else tricky going on. And I think the judge was, you know, proper to, to ask for an evidentiary hearing if, you know, there's, and, and no one should be um, worried about an evidentiary hearing if there's nothing that, you know, was uh, inappropriate going on here. But, you know, with this administration, it's not clear that what you're seeing is what you're getting. And, you know, you look at, you look at the firing of the attorney general in the Southern District of New York, Berman. Yeah. And all, all the trickiness there about Barr announcing that he was, he had resigned and then him coming back and saying, I did no such thing. And then them saying, well, look, if you resign, we'll put you in charge of the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Civil Division of the Justice Department, just, you know, sort of go quietly into the good night. And he said, not a, not a chance. Well, I'm not going to let you appoint somebody to take over this office from the outside, which I guess they could do if the person resigned. They did that in the District of Columbia. Right. Um, he said, you want me out of here? You know, yep. I'm, not, I'm not accepting your quid pro quo. You want me out of here? Fire me. And Barr said in a second letter, you're fired. Yeah. Um, but this whole dance about him resigning and then him saying, I didn't resign. Then they're offering him uh, you know, a job in the security, as head of the Securities and Exchange Commission or the head of the Civil Division, if only he would resign. It raises all sorts of questions because that office is the office that has many investigations ongoing that touch on yeah. Trump or Trump associates. And so it raises the inference that there was something, you know, political going on here to protect the president. Whether it is or not, who knows, but, but the president and, and Attorney General Barr have certainly created an environment where when they do things like this, it sure raises the inference um, that they're doing it for bad purpose. Just like Barr in writing the summary of the Mueller report, yeah. saying what the report said, and Mueller writing back to him saying, no, it didn't. Um, that raises the issue about the integrity of, of this Justice Department and, and, and of the White House. And then, so let me put it to you bluntly, in your opinion, true or false, uh, Barr should, uh, is, well, let me put it to you this way, true, and uh, not a true or false. In your opinion, having spent time served, serving the government, should Barr be impeached? No, I'm not really a big impeachment. Um, is he the most corrupt, in your opinion? I think what Barr should be is criticized when he does things that are worth criticizing. I, you know, the fact that he does something that you don't like, well, that is fine. I mean, it's not that what he's done. I mean, every attorney general does things that people don't like. It seems to be the flouting of the rule of law, which bothers most people. And, as, and, and that he's not independent of Donald Trump. And rather than being the head of the Department of Justice, he's acting as Donald Trump's private attorney. Yeah, a lot of people have that point of view. They probably would have had the same thing with respect to uh, Bobby Kennedy. Um, serving his president's interests, or uh, look, French Smith was Reagan's private lawyer, and he was made attorney general. So, I mean, this is one you, you always have to keep in mind that Trump doesn't arise, you know, in a vacuum of of, of behavior. This this sort of stuff goes on 
you know, essentially all the time. If you don't, you know, your your bigger your bigger complaint should be with the whole system. Not with one individual in one particular point of time. It's not the system. It's that the people manipulating the system are doing so for their own uh, for their own gain. And it's not. And you're right. Trump isn't. He's riding a crest of a wave, and I think he's far more out there than others who have done it. But None of it's right. <laughs> well, the system, the system is broken in a lot of ways. The criminal justice system is badly broken, um, and that's what we're discussing. And 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 yeah. if you, if you really, you're, if you got energy to spend and time on your hands, rather than rail against whether or not Barr should be impeached or whether he's being Trump's private lawyer, go out and try to. Involve yourself with organizations that are trying to bring systemic change to the criminal justice system. That, to me, that would be a, a much better use of one's cost. Yeah. And such as, who would you recommend? Where? Well, I mean, there are lots of organizations that are doing great things. There are all sorts of prison projects, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the American, the American Civil Liberties Legal Defense Fund, the National Organization of Women Legal Defense Fund. I mean, there are lots of organizations that are doing God's work, if you will, um, to make the system a little bit more fair. And I think there's a lot of time that could be spent doing that that'll be much more meaningful in the end than railing against um, Bill yeah. Barr and his tenure. I agree. With that, we're gonna to go to a one last break and we'll be right back. Hi, we're back with a few final thoughts on Just Ask the Question, and with me, Michael Zeldin, who made an excellent point about getting involved in the last segment, which I really appreciate, Michael. I wish, uh, I hope people take that to heart. Rather than railing against one person, getting involved in the system themselves uh, can help affect great change. Um, but we can't get out of a conversation together without a, a question about rock and roll. It's, it's just, I'm, I, I can't have it. <laughs> so here, here's the question. Uh, and, and I say it, um, I, I say it tongue in cheek, but the question is, has the coronavirus uh, ruined rock and roll? Because there's no, there, there, I recently read an article about how, and, and, and it's more than just rock and roll, it's all performed live music, but with lockdowns, people are not going out to see live music really can't, can't go to a symphony, can't go to an orchestra, and most definitely can't appear in your, your local bar and, and watch a, a band play. So you think the coronavirus has changed or damaged rock and roll? Well, it certainly damaged um, people's opportunity to see it in, in, in live venues. I personally, um, like you, um, find you know rock and roll sort of be the air I breathe, and so you can't really go without it for a long period of time. So I'm watching a lot of um, old concerts on um, some of the TV stations that, that broadcast Access TV, I think is one, one of them. But I've been watching also um, rock and roll movies. I, I, I've watched Woodstock part one and two. I've, I've watched Bob Dylan in No Direction Home and um, The Rolling Thunder Review. So there's a lot of 
there's a lot of rock and roll out there to be seen. Well, just not as far as, as far as a, um, a concert that you've seen recently. Well, I still I love the Woodstock. Um, I, I went to it. I remember, <laughs> I remember it well. I think I'm still cleaning some of the mud out of of, <laughs> of me from from that. You might, you might want to keep that mud and sell it. It might be worth something today. <laughs> yeah. But so I mean, I love that concert. I think it's a it's a great concert. I I I rewatched recently um, a Hard Day's Night. The, ah. the, the classic Beatles movie, which led me to watch, you know, the Beatles um, at um, Shea Stadium and other, and other, and other concerts. Um, so there's just a lot of wonderful. There's a great stuff. one in Hard Day's Night, by the way. Remember, he's talking about uh, his his old the, the old guy, and he goes, "He's very clean, isn't he?" And yes. <laughs> they'd written that line because they they had always heard about dirty old men. And John Lennon said, he's very clean, isn't he? <laughs> that, yeah, that's great. That, that guy who played, was it Paul's grandfather? Yeah. Um, he was a great character. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was messing with the cops throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah, selling phot photographs with fake uh, signatures and, and, and causing, causing, you know, he's the one who causes Ringo to run away from the band. Right. <laughs> Not respected um, by the band, that lets us hear um, that the the classic, you know, that that boy song. Yeah, that's that boy or this boy? I I forget. I want you back again. Yeah, that's this boy. This boy, yeah. So you know, I, that's 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 what I've been doing, and then I listen on you know Spotify to to music all all the time. I sort of like go to sleep listening to it. I, I did, I, but I do miss live music. So here, here's a, uh, here's a quiz for you. Wait, 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 where, where, and when is your band next playing? Uh, we're, uh, uh, let's see, the 25th of this month, outdoors, at Hershey. Where, what venue? Yeah, uh, the venue is Hershey's in Gaithersburg. They have two big tents outside, and so we're playing outdoors. Cool. Yeah, that'll be fun. That first time we played since like uh, March. Uh, we haven't even uh, been able to, we just recently started um, uh, practicing, rehearsing, but outdoors uh, in our, uh, our harmonica player's house, which is near uh, Dan Snyder, so we get to annoy him with our music. So, <laughs> Well, let me just say, you know, to your listening audience, that I have taken up the guitar in this um, pandemic thing, and I'm pretty close to announcing my desire to join your band in the year 2030. <laughs> that's when I think I'll be ready to be seen in public. You get past three chords. That's you get past the A, D, and E chords, which yeah. is... Um, and G and you'll be fine. That's rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my quiz for you. Ready? E chord. I think my fingers, my fingers are too fat. <laughs> well, that's great for bar chords. <laughs> I cut mine... Uh, in, a, in an accident, my tendons in one of my fingers, and so I have a hard time making some bar chords, but you, you do what you gotta do. <laughs> yes, sir. So here's my quiz. Give you a line from a song. Tell, you, tell me if you know the song. Oh boy. Stick around with a clown who is sick does the trick of disaster, for the race of my head and my face is moving much faster. No idea. Mr. Soul, Buffalo Springfield. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, oh, 
I know that song, but I didn't. I didn't know that line. Wow. I think you're gonna stump me on these things. I got. I got, I got a couple more for you. All right. So, um, well, he worries his teacher till at night. She's ready to poop from rocking and rolling, spinning in a hula hoop. Again, no idea. Bad boy, the Beatles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's... Wow. Hey, Junior, behave yourself. <laughs> you're you're going to completely um, embarrass me on the end of this podcast. <laughs> this is the fun part. All right, so here you go. Here he comes, all dressed in black, beat-up shoes, and a big straw hat. He's never early. He's always late. First thing you learn is that you've always got to wait. It sounds like a Beatles song also, but I don't know. Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground. Wow. I'm waiting for the man. Uh, and a real good version of that is uh, Bowie's at the Beeb. And, mm. and, here, here, and here's some news for you. All three of those songs we're going to be doing. <laughs> uh, those are the three new ones that the band has learned. But I like the lyrics, so I just thought I'd quiz you with some lyrics. No, those are, those are great. There, there used to be a show, uh, I think it was a radio show, which, which played lyrics and the contestants had to had guess yeah. them. And... Um, I was always terrible at it. You know, I quote, I quote, I quote music a lot, but I realize that I don't know um, as much as I should. So well, I'm, as I'm gonna, a, I kind of have to remember those lyrics. So <laughs> they come in handy. But all right, so all right, let me hit you with one. <laughs> okay, let me hit you with one more. They never did like Mama's homemade dress. Papa's bank book wasn't big enough. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain That's falling on my shoes. Tangled up in blue. <laughs> hey, Dylan. Dylan. Dylan, I think I would um, uh, do. do, 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 do it like this. The Dylan stuff, I, I think I would do well in. But um, I'm surprised I didn't know the Beatles one yeah but uh that's one I remember, of the i remember i remember when i heard that radio show where they were testing people's memory of uh lyrics one of the ones that i remembered that they asked um was the, the line was a crowd of young boys they're fooling around in a corner drunk and dressed in their best brown baggies and their platform shoes swing called sultans of swing yeah um i always like that line well listen michael we gotta do it again if you get a chance mm -hmm. to see the band and we'll talk i want to uh, circle back around with you on a couple of things with the doj in the next few weeks if you're available sure absolutely always for you not, not, notwithstanding you're embarrassing me with these uh with this <laughs> test <laughs> Next podcast, I'll 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 ask the I'll ask the line. You come with a few. You'll stump stump the stump the host. <laughs> All right, kiddo. See ya. Thanks. Be safe. Well, Dude, the show is just ask the question. I am your host Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>